Hey listeners, if you're enjoying our content, you're going to love our friends over at the Mission Critical Podcast. Hosted by Bay Street Bull Editor-in-Chief Lance Chung, Mission Critical explores the purpose and values that drive today's most game-changing leaders. Listen to guests like Ariana Huffington, Well Simple CEO Michael Katchen, Reddit COO Jen Wong, Toronto Raptors head coach Nick Nurse, and many more as they share their insights on what it takes to be great. You can find the show anywhere you get your audio. Just search Mission Critical. This is E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. In response to this year's bull run in the cryptocurrency markets, we thought it'd be appropriate to bring in some expertise to shed light on the drivers here. In this special episode, we chat all things crypto with CEO of Ether Capital, Brian Mossoff, who is on the show for round two. Today, we get Brian's take on the recent bull run and this year's run-up in value of both Ethereum and Bitcoin. We also talk about stablecoins and Visa's unique role here, all things NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and the latest trends in that sliver of the market. Moreover, we discuss access points where the average person can invest and way more. Quick disclaimer, this episode was recorded just over a week ago, so we don't talk about this week's craziness, which saw the value of Bitcoin dropping about 30% in just a few days. That said, so much going on, and Brian truly shares a ton of valuable insights in this one. So with that intro out of the way, let's get to the show. Here is Brian Mossoff. Brian, thanks for coming back on the show, man. Thanks for having me. Always good to be here. Always good to have you. So uh, let's discuss the current state of play right now. So Ethereum just surpassed $400 billion in market cap. What's going on and what's happening in the blockchain space more broadly? So the last time that I was here, there was definitely a renewed interest in the crypto space as a whole. Second half of 2020, as the narrative around pending inflation was kicking in and Bitcoin was going from somewhere around $4,000 at its low point early 2020, up crossing you know its previous all-time high of 20,000 and onward. What's happening specifically now is more people are piling in to the crypto space as a whole. So first, of course, through Bitcoin. And there's a lot of institutional investors and institutional products coming to market that is continuing to give a new set of investors an access point that they didn't have before. And so people who wanted to participate, whether they were treasuries of corporations, investors who weren't comfortable signing up on an exchange and dealing with private keys or hardware wallets, they now have structured products that they can buy. And so there's more capital moving into the space than ever before. What's happening with Ethereum specifically is Bitcoin is the gateway drug. They start through Bitcoin, they read about it, they try and understand what Bitcoin represents and all the possibilities of cryptocurrencies. And then the question is, well, what's next? If you're gonna build a part of your portfolio um, out towards this new asset class, well, should it just be Bitcoin or maybe there's some other things that they wanna include? And Ethereum is that second thing on that list with a very unique set of properties. And when they start doing the reading, they really get to see that Ethereum offers a lot of really interesting potential for applications to be built. And so between the structured products and Ethereum offering this new set of applications that these investors are just being blown away by, 
I think you have this perfect storm for capital flowing into the space and all pricing reaching all-time highs for all these assets. Mm -hmm. I was looking at the three-month chart of Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, before we were doing this interview, and the graphs look quite similar. But if you look at the run-up in the value of Ethereum over the past month versus Bitcoin, the graphs look quite a bit different, right? Bitcoin is sort of flat uh, over the past month, and Ether uh, has nearly doubled in the past month. What's happening here? So... There is something really exciting happening in the Ethereum world that I think as investors start to clue into it, they're going to really get excited about the potential for Ether here. So a few things have gone on. The first is that the network has transitioned from proof of work to something called proof of stake. And what this means is that the type of validation on the network, instead of it being done by people running computing hardware and electricity in certain parts of the world, the new network, ETH2, Ethereum 2.0, or Ethereum proof of stake, allows people who hold the native token, Ether, to participate in the validation and earn rewards for that service. And this is a transition that began on December 1st. It's going to roll out in a few different phases. And people had discounted, I think, the price of Ether and the probability that Ether would ever get to proof of stake. It's been an idea that's been years in the making and is a really technically challenging thing to pull off. There's other proof of stake networks that are around and some other people might read about ETH killers, but no network has ever gone through a transition of proof of work validation to proof of stake. And so the price of Ether got hammered in the previous uh, bear market because I think a lot of people said this is never going to happen. And what's currently underway is this new proof of stake network is live. It went live December 1st, 2020. And people are going to be able to participate in this validation and generate yield by just holding Ether. The second thing that's happening right now is an upgrade called EIP-1559. EIP stands for Ethereum Improvement Proposal. And what this specific proposal says is that all the transaction fees that take place during a day, right? Whether I send you an Ether, I interact with some application, I'm paying some amount of Ether, some transaction fee, for the network to, to secure that that activity took place. And so what 1559 proposes is that those transaction fees that currently go to the miners, the validators of the network, instead, a portion of them should be burned out of existence. They should be taken out of supply. And so what's potentially going to happen here is that the monetary policy of Ethereum is going to be one that's deflationary. And there's going to be all this pressure on the price of Ether because there's less and less supply, potentially, right? What we will know when this takes place is how much new ETH comes in per block, right? Every 15 seconds or so, a new block is created and we know how much ETH comes there. What we don't know is how many transaction fees will take place in that same period and exactly how much supply will be taken out of existence. And so you're kind of getting this perfect storm of this really interesting monetary policy that has not been in Bitcoin ever. It's not been in Ethereum before, and people are getting really, really bullish. And the last breadcrumb that I want to leave for listeners on why people are so excited about the price of Ether right now is, if you think about the transition between proof of work and proof of stake, once you get rid of the need for electricity and computing hardware to participate in mining, validation, and people who just hold Ether can you know, perform this service, well, if I don't need electricity and computing hardware, I don't need to be selling any of my ETH to pay for the cost. 
And so when you remove that from the equation in proof of stake, what's going to happen is Brian, Adam, someone else is going to stake their ether. They're going to receive the reward of some of the transaction fees. They're going to see, receive the reward of the newly mined ether, but they're not going to sell any of it because they don't have to. They don't have to, to cover their costs. They're going to hoard it. I don't know how you can look at this perfect storm and not be excited about the price of ether three months, six months, 12 months down the line. Is there anything more to say about the proof of stake before I ask you my follow-up question here? I think that that pretty much covers it. Proof of stake is a really elegant solution, I would say, for validation. And I think it's important for people to understand, you know, what is the difference between proof of work and proof of stake? And what are some of the benefits to proof of stake? The obvious one being that you've just removed this huge problem with electricity that a lot of people are are concerned about with Bitcoin. But what it also does is it aligns the incentives of the users of the network and the token holders with the people who are performing the validation. And so if you think about proof of work, again, people just spending electricity and computing hardware, if you don't have access to cheap or near free electricity, and you exist somewhere in the world where you can get electricity for free or two and a half cents a kilowatt hour, well, you can do this, right? You're basically gonna just arb this spread, capture that and off you go. You may not necessarily care about the network. You can be a Bitcoin miner and not care about Bitcoin. You're just, again, capturing that spread and making some money while you're doing it. But you have this two, you have these two groups of people going on, right? You've got the people performing the validation and the people who are using the network. Your fantasy is that the people who are using the network are also the ones validating. And the question is, well, how do you make that happen? If Brian's using the network and he's in Toronto at 12 and a half cents a kilowatt hour, that's just not possible. And proof of stake flips this equation around a little bit and says, instead of the thing you're putting at risk for validation being a commodity external to the network, right? Electricity, computing hardware. Now what you're going to do is you're going to lock up your token, the native token of the network, Ether, into effectively a bond with the protocol and then take turns validating the network. And so now the incentives have completely become aligned between the token holders and the validators because you just became the same group of people. And all of a sudden you abstracted away the need for the electricity, the computing hardware, you removed that from the equation. And this is, this is a really big deal, I think. A week and a half ago, you saw one energy grid in China go offline and 25% of the Bitcoin hash rate disappeared. That's not decentralization. That's not the ethos of any of these networks. And so proof of stake is going to further bring that dream to reality. What kind of upward pressure does this put on the price of Ether? Like you mentioned, you know, the price point three, six, nine months out. As you try and project here, what are you guys seeing? I think there's a lot of people in the community who are predicting substantially higher prices of Ether. Mm -hmm. Who knows all the black swans that can come between now and then, right? There's, there's other factors at play. So you can have the change to the monetary policy and the network dynamics kick in, but you still end up with something in the form of regulation. You can have a big exchange get hacked. You can have a bear market that just wants to cool off a very overheated group of people where everyone's making money and the market goes into a, you know, another bear market for another couple of years. All these things are possible. So there's no guarantee what's going to happen with the price. I do think in terms of ether and people wanting to participate in the potential for this network to move to the next stage to maybe compete with Bitcoin and its market cap, that's brewing, that's happening and it's bubbling and everyone's really excited for it. Just look at how much use this network has. 
And one of the things that I really like about CryptoFees.info is it abstracts away the specific use on the network because it's easy to get bogged down and say, well, if I can't understand the exact use case of what someone's doing, then it can't be valuable. But the point is you shouldn't have to care what they're doing. You should just want to know, are people using the network? Yes, no. And are they paying transaction fees? You don't need to know what the majority of the activity is on the internet to know that it's valuable. You just want to know that people are using it. And here you can quantify it in a really, really specific way to know, is this building? Is it um, getting a new set of users? Are there more use cases? Is there more activity happening on this network? And this site points towards the answer, absolutely yes. Speaking of folks who are using it, the European Investment Bank just announced plans to register and settle a $120 million bond issue on Ethereum. How does this impact the value of the platform and the application going forward? I don't know that it specifically impacts the price of Ether. What it does do is hammer home this idea that there is likely going to be in Web3 a politically neutral layer of the internet for value, and that everyone is going to plug in to this, whether it's a private corporate interest, whether it's open decentralized trading, derivatives, options, lending, whether it's NFTs, everyone wants this platform to secure their information and they want the most amount of security. And so where is that activity going to happen? To me, the answer keeps pointing towards Ethereum. It can't be on Bitcoin. When people say, well, maybe it's going to be not Ethereum, it could be something else. If you unpack that argument a little bit and you think about, okay, well, what are the options then? Maybe it's going to be Google. Well, no one wants it to be Google because no one wants one corporation where all of the world's value is being transacted on, right? People are moving away from this narrative of we want to host all of our data through AWS or Facebook or Google. We, we, we want no corporate interest to control it. Is it going to be a government interest? Well, which government would it be, right? No one, no one wants one government controlling all of this global economic activity. So it's not going to be that. So you've ruled out these kind of two obvious answers that people like to give at first glance. So what's next? So you need this open decentralized system. And then the question is, what is it going to be? Well, you can't program Bitcoin in any sophisticated way. The base layer, right, at its core, Bitcoin does not have a very functional programming language. So you can't ask Bitcoin to do any of these kinds of activities. Maybe one day down the line you can, but currently you can't. Ethereum has that flexibility. It has that language in the base layer where you can program it to do all these things. And so what's really exciting here is to say, the technology is here. We can do this on the web. We can have this standard. If you go back to web two in the advent of TCP IP and then IPv4, and now we're on IPv6, I think we're on IPv6, um, you had this neutral standard set of technology that everyone could build on top of. You had the protocol at the base layer, and on top of that, applications can emerge. Facebook, Uber, Airbnb, Google, Amazon, those exist above the protocol layer. Now what you have is, a value transfer layer that can be programmed that you can actually own a piece of. If we all rewound time and ask someone, would you want to invest in TCP IP if there was some way to profit off every single person who interacted with it? Well, their answer would be, of course, I would want to do that. But you couldn't invest into the protocol layer in Web 2. And so Web 3 offers this opportunity when you own Ether, you are part of the ownership of that toll road, that highway that everyone wants to go on, whether it's the European Central Bank, whether it's some other corporate interest, whether it's Visa using stable coins to settle between various merchants or data centers inside their network, or it's decentralized trading, everyone's going to plug in to this politically neutral layer of the internet. 
And so far, it's shaping up that it's likely going to be Ethereum. Okay, can you say more about the Visa and stablecoin thing? How do you explain this to a layperson? So what people like about blockchains is that it's very flexible. You can transact with anyone or any address anywhere in the world, basically like email. But one problem in the blockchain world is you're stuck using Bitcoin or Ether or another token that exists in these systems as your quote currency. And so most of the economic activity in the world is priced in dollars, USD. And so the question really becomes, well, how do you get a US dollar onto a blockchain? How do we use that as the quote currency, but get the flexibility of a blockchain? And there's a number of different ways that you can create tokenized dollars. I won't get into what they are because then we're going to get super into the weeds. But the idea of a stable coin is to somehow represent a dollar, a euro, whatever it is, inside of the blockchain and take advantage of the flexibility of the blockchain, but then transact in the stability of the dollar. And so if you are someone in traditional finance, if you are a corporation and you want to not use the SWIFT network wires for your transactions that are expensive, and you don't want to deal with the clearing times of it being a few hours to maybe a day or a few days, depending on, again, where it's going and who the parties are involved. Well, what are your options? To date, there have not been really great options that live up to what the internet delivered to us, right? Which is instant communication, text messaging, emails, all that stuff is super instant and basically free at this point. How do we move the value the same way? And so Visa, uh, a very forward-thinking company clearly is looking at this problem and saying, well, if we have this layer of the internet now that can transact value in a very secure and trustless way, why can't we just use tokenized US dollars for settlement as we you know, move between various merchants in our network or databases on our system, why don't we just use this network? And so I think you'll start to see a lot of new businesses start to emerge around international payments. This is one of the promises that a lot of people were excited about in the early days is to use these networks for remittance payments and take advantage of how flexible these systems can be. I would assume Banks are not going to sit on the sidelines as they're watching at this point over $90 billion of tokenized USD floating around these blockchains. I don't think that they're going to sit back and say, we'll just let other people take in those deposits and issue the tokens. They're going to get in the game. They're going to also start issuing their own tokens. They're going to participate in the validation. And they're going to you know, jump into the deep end head first and say, this is it. The technology is here. It's here to stay. And there's going to be new businesses and use cases that they never even imagined. And that's, that's an opportunity. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about NFTs in one sec, but before I do that, um, just related to what you're saying here, when you watch companies like PayPal and Square place large bets on, on Ethereum and put this asset class on their balance sheets, does this mean that we're further along this stable coin adoption curve? Those are kind of two different points. When companies are putting cryptocurrencies on their balance sheet, they're either doing it because they're trying to hedge inflation and they don't want to hold 100% USD or whatever's in their treasury, or they're trying to make a statement that they're forward thinking, they want to be leaders in the fintech space. I don't think that they're doing it because they necessarily plan to use the currency. I think that those companies will definitely get into the stablecoin game. In the PayPal scenario, they, they want to give their users more flexibility in how they pay for things. And we're moving into a world where you may not hold one currency. You're going to hold multiple currencies. Some may be fiat, some may be cryptocurrencies. Some can be meme coins like Dogecoin. And it shouldn't matter 
all you should care about is, did you pay the merchant the price that they wanted? And the merchant shouldn't even care how they get paid. They just want to know that they received X value and they can they can request that what they receive is in a very specific denominated currency. So let's say the merchant says, I want USD and you want to pay in Dogecoin. The transaction should still be able to take place. There's no reason that there should be any friction here. What should happen is when you go to that merchant and they price something at seven USD and you want to pay in Dogecoin, fine. You pay in Dogecoin, it moves through some kind of market that has enough liquidity, it sells it for USD, the merchant receives USD, you paid in your Dogecoin, you took your pack of gum, and off you go. That's the world that we're moving to. And people are going to have their wallets be mostly digital at this point. I think most people, if they're based in North America or, or in Europe, they're paying for most things anyway with you know debit, visa, their mobile pay, which is you know just connected to those two things. And so why would why would PayPal not want you to have additional options? Because if they don't, then the risk is that you will go off and find a platform that will provide that service to you. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electricast. JP Morgan is one of those institutions who are now letting its clients invest in Bitcoin via a managed fund. This is for their private wealth clients. That bank has a particularly interesting history with Bitcoin. And I think Jamie Dimon once called Bitcoin a fraud. Does this mean that JP Morgan is, actually, I'll ask the question a different way. Why do you think they're doing this? Is, is it to be forward thinking? Um, what kind of statement is JP Morgan making? And do you expect other big banks to follow suit here? So you're absolutely right that Jamie so far has not really been a big believer in Bitcoin. He's been very public about his views on it starting, I think, as far back as 2015 or 2016. And they initially didn't want to get involved, maybe for a few reasons. One being that they weren't sure that the asset would be here to stay, that it would have any real longevity. They don't want to tangle themselves up with something that's going to potentially go to zero. Best practices had not yet emerged back in 2015 or 2016 in the form of custody, audit, insurance. And so it was probably a very difficult asset for them, even if they wanted to participate, which I don't think that they did, but it would be a very difficult asset for them to, to figure out structurally how to offer to their clients. In the 2017 bull run, the price of Bitcoin is going from the you know low few thousands up to 20,000. Ether is riding its way up to 1,400. And there still was not institution-grade access points. You had fantastic exchanges like Gemini and Coinbase who were figuring it out, right? These are the, the leaders really in digital asset custody, figuring out how liquidity should work for their clients. But... You didn't have the auditors yet who were prepared to issue SOC reports on these assets. And that's why when the SEC looked at all of the filings for ETFs, and there were a number of them in you know around 2017, they rejected them all and just said, we don't think that it's appropriate yet. And they were probably absolutely correct in saying it's not appropriate yet. 
Now what you have in 2020 is you do have what are called qualified custodians. You have custodians who are licensed now as trust companies. You have auditors. And all of a sudden we're moving towards the institutionalization of these assets. And so where does JP Morgan come in? Well, they come in now by saying, okay, the asset didn't die. Sock reports are getting issued. The asset class as a whole is growing to a multi-trillion dollar asset class, right? There's, there's somewhere around $2 trillion just between the tokens themselves. But then there's businesses that surround this, right? There's a whole ecosystem of companies that are supporting these things, tinkering and building. And I think the writing's on the wall that it's here to stay. So if you're JP Morgan, you can't ignore this. You have clients lining up at your doorstep saying, hey, how do I buy some Bitcoin? And whether you are ready to do it now or you wanted to do it in a couple more years, you're either going to send them across the street, right? BNY is very supportive of, of these assets. Um, Gemini is getting aggressive. They're partnering with Visa. Coinbase just went public. If you're JP Morgan, you have no choice. And so again, you're going to have the crypto natives and the technologists on one side who are accessing it in one way. And now you're going to have the people in traditional finance or in more traditional jobs who invest, however, accessing it in another way. And JP Morgan is going to be that on-ramp for them. Going back to what you were saying at the beginning of the episode. So last time you were on, we were talking about this topic of access points. And as you mentioned, like things have evolved quite significantly since we last spoke in terms of the access points that people have. Where should people look if they want to um, invest? Users who want to control the assets themselves, take possession of them potentially, can go on a crypto native exchange. They can go find one in their local jurisdiction. They can make an account. They can go find a way to get their money into the, the platform, decide if they want to hold the asset on the exchange, if they trust their custody and their transparency around what the sets of controls are in place and buy the asset that way. Some of those people will say, I'm going to withdraw it from the exchange into a hardware wallet that they have in their possession. They keep it in their, their house. They make a backup of it. They keep it in a safety deposit box, whatever, browser-based wallet. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you now have people who say, I don't want to deal with any of that stuff. It's way too complex. I want to abstract it away and I'm going to look for a structured product. And so I think the last time that I was on, we had not announced the ETF was approved. We, we, alongside Purpose, had created the world's first Bitcoin ETF. And there were closed funds that existed and closed funds uh, being that you could go and, and buy a structured product through your brokerage account, but you didn't really have daily liquidity. Uh, and so what you had was buying and selling against other shareholders. And so you were paying a premium or a discount to the actual asset value that the fund was holding. But the new the new iteration of that is the ETFs where people can go and through their brokerage account, go and purchase an ETF and know that when they buy $100 of Bitcoin, that they got $100 worth of value in their account. And so that's the complete other end of the spectrum is the people saying, I don't wanna deal with the exchanges. I don't wanna deal with custody. I just wanna find a way to buy $100 of Bitcoin. And they're gonna do that through the ETFs. The US still has not approved an ETF. They still have the, the closed closed fund structure, but there's certainly tension around, uh, you know, the regulators and, and the amount of demand saying it's time for an ETF. It's time for us to have that kind of an access point. And, and that'll come about soon. What are the fees like on those ETFs, by the way? The fees range. I think a lot of people get bogged down in the management fee versus the management expense ratio. They're not cheap products, high level, just call it 1%. You're paying a 1% a year fee for this access point. But people who are buying these assets, 
it's easy to say, well, I don't want to pay 1% when you can have a Vanguard product, you know, doing this huge S&P index where they're charging you five, five beeps. But the difference is this asset is much more expensive of a product to run. There's custody. You're going to have someone, you know, benchmarking the index price of Bitcoin for you. There's, there's lots of different moving parts to creating this product in a very brand new industry. And the people who are buying this asset, I, I think it's important to put into perspective, you didn't buy it because you believed that the asset was gonna go up 4% a year. And then therefore the 1% is gonna hurt you. You're buying the asset because you, you most people I think assume it's either gonna go up or wildly down, but hopefully up if they're buying it, um, by, you know, 50% or 100% or 200 or 300%. That's what they're expecting this asset to do and why they want exposure. So let's move on to NFTs. So non-fungible tokens, a unit of data stored on a digital ledger that certifies a digital asset to be unique and therefore not interchangeable. It's still confusing for, for me and probably for a lot of listeners to understand this space in particular. So what's happening? Let's just reframe the word NFT to make it really crystal clear for people what this is and what fungibility means. If I hand you a $5 bill, you don't care which $5 bill I gave you. I mean, you care that it was a Canadian $5 bill or an American $5 bill, but that's that's it. You don't care if I pulled out you know, the top one in the pile or the bottom one in the pile or one from a counter in a store. It's just a $5 bill. They're all completely interchangeable. When you think about that in the context of art or a deed to a house, you would care which piece of art I gave you or which deed to a house I gave you because what you purchased wasn't just a deed to a house. You would say, no, no, I wanted the deed to that house on that street. And so NFTs are a digital representation of exactly that idea of, I want this token to represent a specific thing. You can start using that token in really interesting and novel ways. And so when people are saying, well, why are people buying these works of art? Why are they buying these NFTs? Why are they going for so much money? And I guess from the outside, it doesn't really make any sense. People just say, how is a JPEG worth thousands of dollars? And if we talk about the CryptoPunks example a little bit further, which I'm a huge fan of the project, so I'll just use this as our as our talking point. When you go on CryptoPunks and you look at these 24 pixel by 24 pixel PNGs, how could this thing possibly be worth $100,000? Well, it's, it's, it's for a few different reasons. I mean, the CryptoPunk scenario specifically is the very first time NFTs really were created on a blockchain. Why is this valuable? Well, some people are saying there's only 10,000 of them. They all have unique attributes to them. So one has a hat, one has this shirt, one has, well, there's no shirts, but one has a hoodie, one has... 3D glasses, and they all have unique attributes, and everyone in the world is looking for scarcity. The reason that people like Bitcoin is because they believe that it's scarce, right? The, the meme of Bitcoin is it's digital gold. When you look at CryptoPunks, it, it has a lot of the same properties of Bitcoin. It was the very first time basically an NFT was created on a blockchain. In fact, it predates a very specific token standard on Ethereum called it ERC-721. So this is the very first time that art really was created on a blockchain. There can only ever be the first. Why is the Mona Lisa so valuable? Well, the Mona Lisa was a first for a lot of things that it did. And so NFTs, there's going to be lots of new people experimenting with 
different types of NFTs, how the token functions, if it can more for change based on ownership or community support. Maybe it requires a number of different token holders to use them in a very specific way. And then maybe there's a group of people who think that there's going to be a lot of value in a very specific NFT, a very specific piece of art. And that later what could happen is fractional ownership in that piece of art. And it's much easier if we talk about fractional ownership it's very easy to do this in the crypto world. It's much harder to do it in the real world. So if you take the Mona Lisa, if there was a way to easily break that up into 100 million shares and let 100 million people or 100 million uh, different shares be owned by various groups of people, a lot of people would probably want financial exposure to it. In the NFT world, this is very easy to do because it's digitally native. Well, that's going on right now in the NFT world where people are still mostly in the price discovery mode, right? They're trying to figure out which of these NFTs is valuable. Some are gonna be worth zero, some are gonna be worth a lot. And so I think a lot of people are stuck looking at the space saying the numbers don't make sense, All this can't have any value. And they're just missing that we're in price discovery mode. We're trying to figure out what is gonna be valuable here. How are these assets gonna be used? Are they gonna be fractionalized? My answer is 100% they're gonna be fractionalized. They'll get used as collateral for other financial products that come later. You kind of have to draw a parallel, I think, to early days of Bitcoin, where people said it's 2012 or 2013, how can this thing that's not backed by anything in the physical world have any value? And it's exactly the same thing that's playing out here. It'll take time for people to get comfortable or accept that even though something doesn't have a physical presence, it can still have value. And if you think of the value of the internet, well, what is the internet worth? There's kind of no way to put a dollar amount on it, but I think we'd all say trillions of dollars, but there's no physical thing to the internet. I mean, there's servers and data centers. Is that the thing that's valuable? No, it's network effects and community and social buy-in. The NFTs are exactly the same thing. It's not the physical thing that's valuable. It's the community and the social buy-in that's telling you that it has value. The same way that Bitcoin is not backed by a piece of gold. It has value because a community and a group of people have bought into the narrative and said, we believe that here's where the price discovery today is landing us uh, you know, on a specific price. How have you thought about experimenting with NFTs yourself? Have you started thinking about tokenizing any of the assets that you have? I've, in a very fleeting moment, thought about what tokenization would look like for real-world assets. I think it's much harder to do than to take something that's digitally native and figure out how that would work. The question is, what is the token representing? Is it the right to sell it? Does it give you the right to something else down the line? SNL, for example, tokenized their video on what's an NFT. It was you know, put up on the web, someone could buy it, and then they put in there that if you own the token to this NFT on a very specific date and time, you get two free tickets to attend a taping that takes place, I guess, at some point that they would arrange later and COVID maybe throws a bit of a wrench in, into that. But for the most part, the, the right to transfer the token gave you not only the opportunity to sell it at a later point in time, but then some other access to another thing. What that thing is can change based on who issues the token. And so I think that there's a lot of opportunity to do things with NFTs, but people have to think about what is the purpose of the NFT? What is the life of the NFT beyond just a cash grab? The NFT world right now is really in the early stages. And the people who are mostly participating are people who are crypto native, 
They're people who understand the technology and they understand potentially where it's going and, and maybe they're buying it because they just have a lot of Ethereum ETH, you know, around from the early days that they bought at a much cheaper price and they're willing to take some of these speculative bets in hopes that they buy an asset that later becomes very valuable because of, you know, where it exists at its point in history, like CryptoPunks. Where are the main exchanges? Like where are most of the transactions in the NFT market happening right now? There's a number of different platforms. As I mentioned, there's Rarible, there's Super Rare, there's Nifty Gateway, there's OpenSea. OpenSea is interesting because it allows people to leave kind of a closed exchange environment and take that token and put it up on an open and public platform where anyone anywhere else in the world without needing to sign up can bid on the asset, they can purchase the asset, they can transfer it. Uh, and so OpenSea is, is kind of a, a nice window into the whole world because you can see all the different things that are being created or traded or sold without having to make an account anywhere. And so even without a browser-based wallet like MetaMask, anyone can go on OpenSea and see rare Elons can see CryptoPunks, they can see MeBits that came out a few days ago, and just look at what the pricing is, look at what the art looks like, is it animated, is it static, and get a sense for what's happening right now and where these assets are being priced. Is there anything else related to NFTs that we should hit on? We just have a few minutes left. NFTs are still really in the early days. I think that there's a lot of opportunity. You're gonna see corporations, Disney, Netflix, uh, sports companies start experimenting with what they can do with this technology. You've already seen NBA and in, in their project called Top Shots, uh, which was partnered with Dapper Labs on the Flow blockchain, release sports moments, NBA moments, really leaders in that technology, leaders in what they can do with the content that they already have. There's going to be more companies who are going to take that lead and say, hey, that was a fantastic use case. It generated a whole new revenue stream that they never imagined. And they're gonna also start looking at their catalog of products and say, how do we generate more revenue? How do we engage users in, in new and really interesting ways? And so even though it's early, I think have a bit of a view into what's about to happen here. And it's, it's really exciting. There's gonna be new content that gets created, repurposed content that gets used in newer and interesting ways, uh, and a whole new set of value that gets unlocked because of the technology. Some interesting things happening also in music, right? With some musicians, notable bands issuing NFTs. Yeah, musicians are gonna look at this and say, how do we use this technology? If they can streamline ownership or royalties in a, in a much cleaner way and get rid of all the fragmentation that happens along the life of a song, you know, they record the song, someone owns the master, there's engineers that have to get paid, then there's the record labels, distributors, there's different band members. There's the potential here to disrupt how the payment works when something gets streamed on Spotify uh, and pays out in a different way, or they can release direct to a, a group of people. I haven't gone too deep down that rabbit hole yet, but I do think that there's a lot of people looking at this problem and saying, this technology will solve those problems. The question is gonna be, is the technology advanced enough to do it in really an efficient way? I'm not sure that it is. I think all the micropayment stuff on the web is really fascinating. It's one of the first ideas that got me really excited about cryptocurrencies back in 2013, when I started reading about Bitcoin and the idea that I don't have to subscribe necessarily to a publication on a monthly 10 or $20 you know, fee. Why can't I just pay three cents to read the article? This still hasn't really happened yet. We're getting close. What you need is the transaction fees 
to, to get small enough where you can start making these micropayments on that set of rails. And you'll have a more direct relationship between the creator of the content and the consumer of content that we have not seen yet. Brian, thanks again for coming on, man. In the last two minutes, where do you want to point listeners to for more on Ether Capital? Thanks for having me. Always uh, great to be here chatting about what's happening in the crypto space. It's obviously evolving faster than ever. Uh, if anyone wants to read about Ether Capital, they can go to the website, ethcap.co. And if they have any questions specifically for me, you can always find me on LinkedIn, Twitter. Happy to chat anytime to you, your listeners. And uh, it's you know never been a, a more fun time to be in the space and seeing a new group of users who are curious and seeking out information. And I love being the oracle of that. I like being right about things. I like being wrong about things. I like learning and seeing where this is all going. That's it, guys, for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Want to build recurring revenue for your business? Visit scriberbase.com for more info. If you enjoy the show, download, share, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at glow.fm slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric acid. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast.